Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Medic to Medic Podcast, the weekly podcast for EMS providers, EMS leaders, EMS medical directors, and those interested in emergency medical services. You can listen to past podcasts on iTunes and at my website at medictometicpodcast.com. Today from the Cary EMS studios, it's Steve Cohen along with Charles Gene Lambert. Gene has been in EMS for over 40 years. His resume is so long, we're going to let him talk a little bit about it. And Gene just retired recently from the Wake County EMS division, and we'll talk about some of his other ventures. Gene, welcome to Medic to Medic Podcast. Thank you, Steve, for having me. So tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I guess the short place to start is, as I say, is at the beginning. I grew up in a small community uh, near here, Clayton, uh, where my father was a volunteer fireman. And this was back in the day before child restraint systems required people to ride around their dad's 60 model Chevrolet uh, unbelted. And uh, I would get to ride with him to different fires and things along those lines, hang out at the firehouse while the firemen cleaned fire trucks on Saturdays and had uh, Fireman's Day parades and things along those lines. So I guess I would say that's where I probably got my earliest uh, thrill of being around uh, fire departments, public safety. Of course, we didn't call it that back then, but that was where that seed was early planted. Do you remember when you felt that, okay, this is where you wanted to go for a career? There were, there were a few things that happened in my life that were, that were remotely monumental at the time. However, I did not realize the role inevitably in my professional career that they would play. So I was a Cub Scout, went into Boy Scouts, and had earned my first aid merit badge. Mm-hmm safety merit badge, emergency preparedness merit badge, and just had an interest in those things, uh, I guess because they correlated back to fire service, fire department, things along those lines. At the time, my oldest sister was attending nursing school at what was then called W.W. Holding Institute, which is now Wake Technical College, in the same building where thousands of EMT students have since been trained, which still exists these days on the Wake Med campus. Uh, she would come over to the apartment that my mother and I lived in after my parents divorced uh, on the weekend of the first men landing on the moon back in 1969. And she would share with me all these things that she had learned in nursing school, which obviously were you know, new to me. Sounded exciting. She was due to graduate that summer and was on her way home from working at Rex as a nursing student before she graduated. 
and was traveling down 70 Highway in Clayton on the way home to her little girl's three-year-old birthday party when a car ran a stop sign, hit her in the side, and killed her from what we understand fairly instant. I had just spent the night with her and her husband and two children that Friday night before my mother and I went to see relatives up in Roxburgh, North Carolina. So when we came back Sunday, we walked in our apartment. The phone was ringing with the announcement that my sister Vicky had been injured in a wreck. At the time, we didn't know how bad. We went over to what was then called at the time Wake Memorial Hospital, and we were standing in the hallway when unbeknownst to the rescue squad people at the time from Clayton, they walked by and had an informal conversation and one asked the other, well, how's Vicky doing? And he said, well, Vicky's dead. As my mother and I stood there in the hallway to the emergency room. So you can imagine having to, number one, hear that shock and disbelief. That would, I, would be the moment that I would say that I really felt later a need to be more involved in first aid and and those types of things. And it wasn't until much later in life that I, after the show Emergency came on TV, that I saw in myself in those, some of those situations where those guys made the difference. I said to myself, I would like to be able to do for someone else what maybe wasn't done for my sister at the time. Knowing what we know now, she had a, 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 ruptured a order from a, a, a broken rib and a broken neck, and her death was probably instantaneously, and that would have never been corrected. But that strong desire to, at the time, because EMS was you know, not really that much a thing at the time of her death. It was in its infancy, pre-planning stages, so to speak. So that would be um, the nucleus of probably the single event that propelled me into what we now know as emergency medicine. You were relatively young when she died. I was. I was uh, 12, maybe 13 at the best. It was probably the summer that I was probably about to turn 12 or either 13. That had such an impact on you and led you to moving into the EMS career. Where was your first start? Well, let let me take you through those steps. Um, So while I had this burning desire to, to learn more about first aid from scouting in my first aid merit badge, they had just opened up the triangle chapter of the American Red Cross on Pear Tree Lane in Raleigh, which was at the, within walking distance from the apartment complex that my mother and I lived in. So I went down there and enrolled as early as I can, and I am fairly certain that that age was 13 years old, and started taking any first aid classes that they had. The... The first one I took was when I was in the sixth grade. It was um, called Multimedia First Aid. And then the second one I took would have been at the uh, Pear Tree Chapter House was called Standard First Aid. And then the second one I took was Advanced First Aid and Emergency Care. As I enjoyed that more, I had a strong desire to teach because I had been teaching the other scouts in my scout troop first aid, the things that I had learned in first aid and so forth. And it was there that I really felt the desire and a knack for teaching and explaining things to people, you know, in layman's terms, so to speak, in in a way that made sense. So I was not old enough to be an instructor for the Red Cross, but they had a little program called an instructor's aid, which was somebody that wasn't young enough could go and help the instructor do skills, 
what we now call skills checkoff, learning how to use roller bandages, galls, backboards, things along these lines, passing out paperwork, answering questions, you know, things along those lines. So that was where I got my first feel of teaching, dealing with people, talking with people, and those types of things. Concurrent with that, the American Red Cross, as they have done for decades now, uh, manned first aid stations at the NC State football games, the state fair, and other public venues that everyone that came up, I would sign up for, and my mother would drive me to those places. She really got uh, aggravated sometimes having to move me all around the city, but I loved doing that kind of work and, and helping people you know, to the extent that I could at the time because this was still kind of you know, pre the, the big EMS days. As I got into high school, I tried to narrow that career path, and there was a program there called Health Occupations 1 and 2. Health Occupations you took first. It was a first-year program, and I wish I could recall the things, but it was general things about health, you know, human, uh, human science, biology, and things along those lines, but on a very superficial basis. And you could come back if you finished that portion and take what was called Health Occupations 2, which was a two-hour co-op that you could be tracked into an area of special interest. Well, my special interest was emergency room, and at the time, they had never done that before. So it was a little bit of a, not a problem, but it was a, um, a challenge to get myself uh, and another couple of classmates into that program. And it was what I would pat myself on the back and call my success while observing for two hours every day in high school in the emergency room at Wake Memorial led to my second full-time job in my career, which was working as what we call a nurse technician in the emergency room at Wake Med at the time. But I couldn't start there until my 18th birthday, which was going to be August the 16th of the year 1979. So I knew I had that job waiting in the wings, and in the interim, when I got through with my senior year, I actually worked at a place in Raleigh called Stinnett Uniform Sales, which has morphed into becoming Century Uniform Sales, that I sold, at the time, predominantly police clothing, gear, leather goods, uh, badges, everything except for firearms that you can think of. Uh, we were selling some uh, EMS, uh, EMT uniforms at the time, white shirts, pants, boots, uh, any other kind of garment that you can think to outfit a, a new employee, either in uh, police, fire, EMS. We, we even designed, helped Raleigh Fire Department design its original patch. So that was kind of where I got myself into up through my senior year in high school and what I did at least you know, for that time that I started working at Wake Memorial Hospital. What sent you in the path to go to EMT school? Well, because I always wanted to. And number one, it was a job requirement for working in the hospital. So I went to EMT class um, and a little known person in the community at the time named Barry Bunn, who is now a physician, uh, was one of uh, an employee with Wake County MS, was one of my instructors, but the lead instructor interestingly, was named Parker uh, Eels, and he was a nursing supervisor for Central Prison, and that was the first time I'd ever met anybody and ever had any idea that Central Prison had a, such a large hospital with its own operating room staff and, and so forth and so on. But he was the lead um, instructor at the time, augmented with people like Barry Bunn, George Oliva, uh, Richard Hess, uh, 
and the list could go on. Norman Dean, a, a former chief of Wendell Rescue Squad, I had to have that before you know I could start employment. And I started employment there right after that in the, the late summer of the year that I was to start Wake Tech with a concentration in police science because there was no EMS degrees or programs at the time. There was only very few agencies across the nation that even offered what we call paramedic or MICT, which was most commonly you know, found up in Greensboro, and I knew that I wasn't going to be going to Greensboro. So I had, I had taken everything that I could up through 1979 or 80 in my quest or my desire to learn more about emergency medicine, EMT work, public safety, and those kinds of things. Finish EMT school? Was in the EMT class. Um, buddy of mine at the time um, talked me into joining the rescue squad in Garner. Uh, his name is Edward Cashwell, and also the uh, chief at the time is the now mayor of Garner, Ronnie Williams. And Ronnie was... Um, very instrumental in getting the rescue squad kicked off uh, in Garner. And Garner Rescue Squad was uh, a very infantile service at the time, even though it had been in service for about five years at the time that I joined. It actually was chartered and formed a year before Wake County MS was. To answer its uh, neighborhood cry, basically, for ambulance service, because it was only staffed at the time by a private company in Raleigh named Beacon Ambulance. That being as it may... The next level of training that became the most available to us was the mass trousers level, which was, as you know, us old folk or dinosaurs, as we call ourselves, you know, we know what mass trousers are. Um, and that was, you know, it seemed like it was maybe one night or three or four hours of training here. You know, we bring these things out. This is how you use them. You put them on and don't do this, don't do that, and so forth and so on. And fortunately, I was the first one in Wake County to ever use those on a pin situation at what's now Mechanical uh, Boulevard in Garner, uh, in 401 in Garner, where it kind of comes together there where the Lowe Shopping Center is. So let's talk about that call. Since you were the first one to use the mass suit here in, in Wake County, what were you doing? Tell me about were you at the station, were you on the road, tell me how the call came in, Yeah. tell me what your thoughts were. Well, scared to death basically from what I well, from what I can remember, because this was, you know, obviously in the very early 80s, Garner was one of the few rescue squads in the time, which is what attracted me to it, that actually staffed people 24 hours a day from the station, as did Cary and just maybe a couple of other places in the county, to give a more, you know, exigent response to citizens' uh, calls for help. So I was on duty, and it was in the daytime. We got this call um, to a pen, you know, at that location. And remember now, uh, when I joined the rescue squad in Garner, some of the best equipment that we had was sometimes homemade. We had a, a van ambulance that had the metal roof cut off that had a fiberglass extension shell put on top of it so that you could stand up in it. Literally homemade wooden cabinets in it. <clears throat> and some of our better splinting devices were just plywood wrapped in clean or, or gauze pads that was then covered in duct tape, literally duct tape. So this whole phenomenon of, you know, the medical technology that we have now was just, you know, a dream. It was not even somewhere that was even hardly on emergency because they used some of the same equipment. That being as it may, um, the patient was pinned in for a period of time, had multi-systems trauma, was hypertensive and all that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, I, you know, I guess I, I guess I should put these mass trousers on. And just like it always was, no matter how neatly somebody put them back, uh, at best, they were cumbersome to put on the patient. We, we, uh, we, we put them on, uh, got in route to the hospital. 
and I came in, and of course, and I remember just a few expletives uh, of the emergency physician that was on at the time that was decrying, what the hell are these things that you guys have got on them? So that was the my first experience, um, I guess, with you know true advanced life support. You know, even though as rudimentary as it would have seemed at, at the time, you know, it, it was the big stuff. So we left um, the mass trousers training, uh, and a new program came around called IV certified. Lord, you know, everybody was jumping on the bandwagon to be IV certified, and it was gonna it was gonna fix everything and everybody, no matter what album. The IVD5 and WKB. Right, right on, exactly right. A, a teaspoon of Ipecac and make, make anything good. Uh, of course, the county had been in the first program. Wake County EMS had been in the first program. Um, and then there were a handful select of us throughout the county that were uh, in the first, what I would call the volunteer training program. Uh, and that was a handful of us from Garner, Cary, uh, and it seemed like uh, maybe Six Forks and some other folks at the time. And then we all completed our IV training, and um, we got all three of the you know, top-level IVs, fluids, lactator rings, normal saline, and D5W. Uh, didn't have any, and that was all that we did. We didn't have any uh, D5, uh, D50 to push with it. Didn't have any uh, epinephrine for bee stings or anything along those lines. But, you know, we were certainly going to cure the world with whatever it was that we had at the time. And then as things you know, progressed, you know, we added some things later, and, and I can remember there's a... Um, popular district chief right now, his name is Jeff Hammerstein, whom probably I got in the most trouble in my professional career protecting uh, because um, it was not in the protocol at the time to use bee sting, uh, to use, um, excuse me, uh, epinephrine at the time for, oh, I'm trying to lose me at, the, at this moment exactly why Jeff gave it, but at the end of the short story was that it was in the best interest of the patient. Of course, you know, Jeff was, you know, kind of scolded a little bit by the medical director at the time who said, look, I agree with why you use it, but by policy we weren't supposed to use it. And I you know, was right there behind all my people at the time to support any poor decision that they may have made, as long as it was in the best uh, interest of the patient. You know, sometimes those things certainly happen. But um, that was just, you know, one instance of, um, you know, when people were out there trying to make a difference. And, you know, I've always felt like that protocols and procedures were to give us good guidance, but were not to take away from good judgment. And, you know, it's unfortunate when we get put in those situations, but you know that that's just like life, right? I mean, you don't ever know when the decision you're going to make is a bad one until after you've made it. And then you say, right, right, well, maybe I shouldn't have made that decision. Um, but if we could go back, then all of us would be perfect, and, and then life would not be as exciting as it is sometimes. When I enrolled in, in uh, the police science program at Wake Tech, there wasn't because it was no paramedic program or anything else to go to, and I had a handful of career things that I was interested in. Law enforcement, emergency medicine, nursing, and the funeral service. So I thought, well, you know, I'll go to work with the sheriff's department while I wait for this paramedic thing to ever come across the, the, the radar, if it ever does. Uh, and in the meantime, I was working part-time with Wake County EMS. I had got on there. Uh, I was working night shift in the emergency room. Made a great bunch of alliance relationships with, uh, you know, the old EMTs from back in the day, Billy Tube, um, Norm Ramsey, and some of those predecessors to the guys that, you know, first got the, the program uh, kicked off. And so um, one of the big reasons why I was employed at Wake County MS was to backfill during the day for the guys that would get off shift and go to paramedic class over at the hospital with Joseph. So 
<coughs> excuse me, Joseph Salkin, who had been hired as the county's first full-time training officer at the time. So I would get off at 6.45 in the morning from the hospital, and I'd go downtown to Station 1 and run calls all day until you know, 3.34, 4.35 o'clock, go home, catch a short nap, go back to work that night at the hospital and do the same thing over all during the week um, you know, to support them while they were in school. That kind of took place. I had moved up into the chief's position in Garner at the time, and uh, I think it was 1984-85, after having served at kind of a daytime lieutenant's position, which served as a chief of operations for the most part from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., was elected that summer of 84-85 to serve as chief and um, it did not appear that there was going to be uh, the availability for a host of number of reasons for the us volunteer squads carried included as well to move to that paramedic level and it was a great desire between the three chiefs uh, what i called the big three at the time which was um, Carrie Garner and Six Force. And at the time, that would have been myself serving as Chief of Garner, Bob Annunziata, Chief as Carrie, and Don Adams um, was the Chief of Six Forks. Because Six Forks had not been too long in what we call an upstart uh, rescue squad as well. And I remember aggravating uh, Gerald Brown to death about, you know, when are we going to get to go? When are we going to get to go? So forth and so on. The Gerald Brown was the. Gerald Brown was, he was the, he was the then director of Wake County EMS. He came in uh, after Russell Capps, uh, who had been the original emergency management, emergency preparedness, EMS director kind of thing that all morphed into itself very quickly. For our listeners, in North Carolina, the counties are responsible for providing emergency medical services. So when we talk about Wake County EMS, they are the seat of government. They're responsible for providing emergency medical services. Today, uh, Apex Carrier EMS and Eastern Wake EMS have contracts to work with Wake County and provide 911 service in the county. Very much so. And of course, I don't know if you've touched on this in your other podcast or not, but Wake County EMS, you know, came to be because of a failing contract at the time with the private ambulance service. There were only a few, as we call them, rescue squads out in the in the true county to support their local communities. And as these came on, you know, they were umbrellaed in under what we call now the Wake County Invest System. So that's kind of how the volunteer squads at the time got that training. But this is the interesting way that we did it. We didn't hold anybody hostage, but we certainly said we're going to, we want to meet you all for a good meal. And of course, you know some some of the better decisions in life are made over a good meal. And knowing that Gerald Brown and Linda Barham at the time used to like to eat at the K and W Cameron Village, um, myself and Don uh, and Bob Annunziata, we plotted that we would slay these guys with our idea over lunch one day. So we did, and of course they drug along Joseph, who is notorious you know, for making sure that he gets a good meal and much to his uh, decision-making process, it's usually a pretty good one. So we sat there over lunch and we said, look, we don't care what it takes. We don't care how much money it costs. We don't care about anything but bringing the paramedic level to our citizens in these three communities. And we're willing to give you the people to go to class if you all will make this happen with us. Words were exchanged, thoughts were exchanged, ideas were exchanged, all kinds of things were exchanged. And it was over that probably 60 or 90 minutes that we all sat together uh, off in a, in a banquet room at the KW Cameron Village 
that Gerald and Linwood, you know, maybe reluctantly said, you know, okay, well, fine, we'll do it. And they looked at Joseph, and you could kind of see the color run out of Joseph's face because he had just taught two years' worth of paramedic and was now, you know, looking at having to teach, I'm sure we were in class for 16 months, to a nighttime certificate group of folks. And I don't remember, it seemed like it was in the fall of, of a particular year that we started that program, a uh, handful of folks from the from the top three squads at the time, because we were the biggest, uh, running the most calls and, and had the, the head numbers to put into a class to make it a success. And so that is kind of how those squads, we started to deliver, uh, you know, advanced life support to our communities. And it, and it wasn't about our personal desires, Steve, it was just simply the right thing to do. If the training and the equipment was there and the infrastructure was there to do it for the citizens of Raleigh, then we should be able to expand that to all of the boundaries of Wake County as much as those rescue squads could afford it. Now, keep in mind, when we spoke about this in a what we call a rescue chiefs meeting, which I was president of the Rescue Chiefs Association for the same five years I was chief in Garner, it was not met well with the uh, thoughts and desires of the other rescue chiefs because they publicly said, "You're putting too much. You guys are putting too much pressure on us to bring this to our communities." And we'll tell you right now, we don't have the money, the people to do it because you know, in Garner at the time we had a hundred volunteers, with you know probably twenty five of as best I recall that were just clamoring to get into the class. So we had our own demons to battle and to say, you know, look, we just feel like this is the right thing for our community to do. We understand your position, but we're going to forge ahead. And so it was not very far long after that that the county started putting out Wake County paramedics into the squad. So anyway, that being as it may, that's where we are now. Politics back then, politics today. It'll never go away. It's it's going to be a necessary evil. Uh, And and as as the most popular saying is, it is what it is. (laughs) It is what it is. So I I learned a lot about how things are done. And I learned a lot about politics. I learned how we did it here in the South. So you were working for the Wake County Sheriff's Department. And you're working part-time at Wake County EMS, right? Well, so here's the story about that. You know, as they say, here's how the story goes, Paul Harvey. I had applied for a job uh, at the time with Wake County EMS, interviewed with them, and had interviewed almost simultaneously as a job with Wake County Sheriff's Department. Went into the uh, interview with the Sheriff's Department, and before I even got out of the door, I was hired. The Sheriff told me, says, well, I'll hire you. You know, you start six days. I said, well, can I get two weeks? He said, no, you can start five days. I said, okay, fine. We'll stop right there. So I literally walked from the courthouse back over to Station 1, which was in the old station location, and I walked in and I told Linwood and Gerald, you know, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm tender, I have to tender my resignation because at the time you could not work for both agencies. However, there was a group of deputies, Ronnie Stewart, Max Pickett, and some other guys that, while they were deputies, did work part-time with Wake County MS, but somebody said that was a conflict and they made them stop it, that being as it may. So I went home, and I'll never forget this phone call. It was Eddie Godwin, was a, one of the supervisors at the time. They called him Shine, and he called me up, and he said, uh, hey, look, um, you know, I, I've talked to uh, Linwood and Gerald, and, and, and they want you to come to work here. And I said, well, you know what? I said, while I appreciate that offer, I said, you all had the offer 
a couple of weeks ago to offer me a job and you didn't or you haven't, I said, I went today for an interview and the man hired me on the spot, you know, I can't say no. The fortunate thing is that since I was on the rescue squad in Garner, I was able to, I guess, feed both of those appetites of, you know, lifelong interest in law enforcement and medicine by being a volunteer, you know, by night, paramedic, EMT, so forth, um, and then be a career law enforcement during the day, so to speak. So that's how I can currently serve both of those interests at the same time until I left EMS and uh, left the Sheriff's Department went back, came back to EMS full-time in September of 1998. Spent 31 years with Wake County EMS. Talk about your career path there, some of the highs and some of the lows and maybe some of the funny stories. Wow. Well, we could probably spend days uh, doing that. Um, as I said, uh, because I was still very much in the volunteer sector and chief of a major EMS organization here, I was able to, you know, uh, be paramedic at nighttime and, and deputy sheriff during the day. And uh, it was a lot of struggle. It was a lot of uh, personal sacrifice. And- Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Family sacrifice. Unfortunately, I was um, still single at the time until I was almost 30. I married for my, for my generation kind of late in life. And one of those is that I just wanted to do, quote, all the things I wanted to do before I got married so I'd have time for family and so forth and so on. Well, we knew that as time was continuing to go by, the education requirements, the recredentialing requirements, and all of these were, you know, continuing to keep up with the same pace of all the other demands of professional life and so forth. And so um, going to class at night, trying to keep up con ed and those types of things, uh, after I came back to EMS full-time, obviously it was, was much easier to do. When I came back to EMS, it was in a you know traditional uh, field paramedic position that I then uh, went up to a senior paramedic position. And as with most of my job that I had with the Sheriff's Department, I was always eager to move forward. And I was very fortunate enough to take place in a lot of firsts with the Sheriff's Department. I was one of the first inaugural Sheriff Academy instructors that we ever had. I was the first certified tactical paramedic uh, in Wake County. Uh, was a coxswain on the Marine Enforcement Unit, uh, and just got to do a lot of other things that really quenched, you know, my thirst uh, for law enforcement. The things that I could look back and say, well, I was glad that I got to do those. So when I came back to EMS, we were just paramedics. You know, we were just paramedics doing our thing. You know. Rolling along, kind of bouncing from call to call to call. There wasn't anything real big on the horizon. While I had, you know, taken part in some uh, some pretty good calls, as we, you know, uh, as we say, I remember one of the most memorable. Um, I believe was on um, April Fools. I believe in 1997 was when we had the American Eagle commuter crash. Out at RDU, it claimed several lives. I was the uh, first responding deputy that was uh, in charge as a law enforcement command that night on the scene. 
And um, one of the most harrowing things that I remember about that call, number one, is that when we got there, uh, Mark Justice, who at the time was working full-time with Wake County EMS, was also volunteering with APEX, met me uh, as I got out of my patrol car, and we looked way back in the back of some woods, and it looked like a campfire. I mean, literally, it looked just like a campfire. And, of course, it was in this very remote part of the county at the time, which is now a metropolis. And there was an old farmer that said, uh, you know, yeah, I think, you know, the plane went down back there. And um, I remember it was cold. It was rainy. <clears throat> it was not even, I don't think, 1,900 hours yet because we had just checked on duty from in-service training that afternoon for night shift. So Mark and I started walking towards where that campfire was. And as we walked closer and closer and further and further into the woods, that became a huge fireball. And it was the carnage uh, of that commuter aircraft crash. And debris was literally strewn for as far as you can imagine and as far as we could see. Um, couldn't hear the sounds of any responding sirens because it, we had gotten right far away away from the road. Nicky Winstead and his son Greg showed up very early on in that situation. I believe they may have gotten there uh, by private vehicle. And so there was just a handful of us literally on the scene. There was a couple of Marshall firemen down there. And we had literally bodies strewn all over the place. We, we could hear some people that were surviving that were moaning and groaning. We had people trapped in fuselage. And that was probably the first time in my career uh, in law enforcement and EMS that I, for a moment in time, felt overwhelmed due to, number one, where we were, lack of resources, lack of time and resources. I knew we were a long way from trauma centers, and I did not know how we were going to get all these potential people out of the hot zone into treatment sectors, transportation sectors and all those types of things. And we, you know, we were okay with incident command back then, but we weren't what we should have been. And that was one thing that kind of helped get me more interested in incident command later on and understand, hey, you know it and understand it, it can really be your best friend. And if you don't, it can really make you look, you know, ill-prepared. So that was probably one of the most um, harrowing calls that I remember at the time. I was a deputy sheriff also... Uh, as the law enforcement commander for the WTVD-11 helicopter crash, which uh, crashed with uh, Tony Debo, was a very uh, famous sportscaster in this area. And the way we got that call was um, a lady uh, in a fairly uh, rural area of Wake County that was populated with mostly African-American families called the Sheriff's Department to say that there was some white man knocking on her door late at night, and I believe it was almost like midnight. I got the call, responded out there, um, and it ended up being Tony Debo, and he described that they were flying back from Wilmington doing Friday night football, uh, a um, championship playoff, I believe, and that all of a sudden they were flying along and everything got quiet in the helicopter. And come to find out that they had problems with metal fragments in the hydraulic lines kept showing up and there's a magnetometer in those lines that gives a warning signal because obviously you don't want metal shavings in your hydraulic lines. Pilot thought it was a faulty light because they had supposedly fixed it, kept hitting that light to turn it off. He said the next thing he knows, the cabin grew dark, got very quiet, the aircraft went down, and I'm convinced that the only reason he survived is because he was thrown clear from the seat when it catapulted several times in a freshly plowed farm field. But he found uh, 
safety by looking at a small light in the distance. And he followed that light on a broken ankle to the lady's house, and it was her back porch light. So that uh, was, you know, two big aircraft uh, accidents that happened in pretty close proximity around this area that fortunately I was able to be a part of, at least on the law enforcement side, uh, and kind of get those under my belt as, you know, big responses and, and things to do and lessons learned. What are some of the lessons you learned? You can never train enough and always be prepared for the unexpected. And, and it can be even little things like um, I put together a... Uh, a, a day pack, what I call a day pack in my patrol car. In the wintertime, it had extra dry socks, toboggan, uh, cans of water, and sustenance bars because, you know, when you got stuck out on a traffic control point or something along those lines, sometimes with chest problems, you may be there for 12 hours. So your warmth and your hydration and your things along those lines, and I still carried that with me when I came back to EMS working every day, I, I put my little bag in the truck. I said, because, you know, even though we may think we're going to be slow, we don't know when we're going to necessarily be back, so I would always have those things with me. And just that desire just to continue to learn. So paramedic program, you know, had been kicked off. We were muddling along through that. And then um, some field training officer positions came up, and I applied for one of those and fortunately was promoted to that. Right on the heels of that, uh, Dr. Myers, you know, brought this thing up called Advanced Practice Paramedic. And I thought, you know, that, that sounds pretty good. I'll give that a try. A lot of us went through what I consider to be fairly rigorous testing at the time to kind of filter out those. And I was very fortunate to have made it through that. Uh, sat uh, as an attendee in the world's first inaugural advanced practice paramedic program by which there was no core design. There was no, <laughs> there was no true outline and things. You know, we did it as we went along. And of course, Dr. Myers had a, a great vision of, of where that program was not only to take us as paraprofessionals, but better yet, the community, which I think is the most important thing. It wasn't about him or us. It was about there's a problem here in the community. We're going to address it, and how are we going to get there? I just need you guys to be good stewards, try to pay attention in class, and let's pull this thing off without a hitch. Uh, and it, too, reminded me uh, of the struggles that we had back when we incepted the paramedic thing at the volunteer level. There was lots of animosity among some field paramedics because the perception, sometimes we, the APPs, may have unfortunately fed into that because of either what we did or didn't think about our role at the time, um, was that, well, you you think you guys think you're better than us and you get to da-da-da and do all these different types of things. And that was unfortunate, but just as a natural course, I can remember that very same division uh, sociologically within the confines of the rescue squads uh, almost being publicly chastised by my, at the time, peers because Garner Rescue was going to the paramedic level and it was leaving Rescue Squad X behind. And it, wasn't, it was never about that. It was never about me and what Gene Lambert wanted. It was about what Gene Lambert strove to do for the same blonde-headed nursing student that was lying motionless in her car driving home to her daughter's birthday party. I simply wanted to make the difference in whether somebody lived or died. Uh, I didn't give a damn about any politics, any money. I didn't care if you were volunteers. Some of the best paramedics I've ever met were volunteer paramedics, and I don't think any of that ever had any play to do with how well somebody academically and operationally prepared themselves for their career. So uh, that being said, that was, you know, that was the big thing, uh, was the APP program. And of course, 
while we sat in class, you know, we sat through and watched the, the politics from the sidelines, internally and externally, as there were, you know, other questions from other chiefs and other squads, and, oh, this ain't going to work, and you're taking, taking men off the streets to go out here and fly around these charges. They're going to do all these kind of crazy things. You're going to cost money. Well, yeah, you know, we're right, but we're going to save you money. We're going to save you guys time as field medics from taking these people to the hospital that don't need to go. We're going to put you back in service. So, you know, and I think that's, you know, kind of come full circle, so to speak. But I remember Dr. Myers coming in uh, on numerous occasions uh, and kind of wiping his forehead back, kind of like his uh, first stepson Jason Wells does when he gets aggravated and saying, boys, I just ain't sure how this thing is going to go because I talked to David Cook and we ain't got no money and we can't do this, this, and this. But at the end of the day, it came together. Uh, and we were able to make it, and you know, thanks to the, you know, people like yourself, Steve, and Carrie EMS and all the other squads you know that had to believe in a program that was brand new and unfounded and was uncertain now let's think back a few decades ago that was the same way with the paramedic program and unbeknownst to a lot of people that the first paramedic program in the world wasn't in los angeles it was in the mountains of north carolina and so you know those folks did the very same thing they saw a a need in their community they had a desire to answer that need in their community. And at the same time, it was that uphill battle to show to people, doctors, nurses, and all these other naysayers, who are always willing to jump up and say, well, you can't. Let me show you I can't. That was Jim Page's vision. Exactly. You can, you can do it. Just like how Garner community decided that they needed a rescue squad. Mm-hmm. And Carrie came out the same exactly. way with two people, two kids dying on Kildare Farm Road right outside our station. The town leader, you know, the mayor and town people and the fire chief uh, got together and said, we need to start our rescue squad. And we solved a problem. Right. We can solve that problem. And this is how we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And hence, Carrie Mess has been here for 43 years. Mm-hmm. We've been part of the system. Going back to the APP program, we see the results of right. the program. Right. Uh, you know, we don't, look at the APPs any differently um, than any other you know, provider out there. They're a great resource. They have great contacts. They're right. really great with patients. They have that extra training. Right. And what I like about it is when I go on a call with an APP, I'm learning from them on how they handle the situation. Mm-hmm. And so then I can move on. If I face that situation again, You know, I'll be able to hopefully handle it without calling the APP. Right. Um, but if I do, I know they're there. And when we had you know, Sour Maris who died, um, suddenly you know, one of our active members, and we've never had that happen, had you know, Lisa here as an APP. We also had Shannon. One of the District 7 came and really was part of our support team that night. And because of Lisa's training and ability, she gave me some great advice because I was looking in a different direction as she sat in my office. Actually, she, I was sitting in my chair. She kneeled down and talked to me and said, you probably need to go in a little different direction. And this is the reason why. And you, know, you, know, you go whatever direction you want, but I took her advice, and it's the right advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't even thinking that way. But there was somebody there that was able to help, somebody to help me as well as our organization. I'm a firm believer in the advanced practice paramedic program. I've had a lot of conversations uh, on my podcast about community paramedicine, uh, and it's such a big program, and it continues to grow. You retired as a training chief? I did. Uh, and so that, that was to get into my next role. Uh, Steve Gardner, whom I had known, wow, since I came to work with EMS originally in 1981. Uh, Steve was a full-time, uh, at the time, EMT. 
here, uh, he had retired and I had uh, been in the APP role for a little while. And uh, when Steve retired, I thought, you know, well, let, let me ponder this, you know, education thing here. Uh, and, but the thing I really was interested about it at the most is that the role I would be taking up, because Don Garner had uh, come back to the county at this point, would be to work with the fire service guys. My desire, even when I was promoted to an investigator with the sheriff's department, my true calling was boots on the ground, hands in the wound, reactionary, getting out there and answering the calls. Uh, I never really enjoyed being an investigator with the sheriff's department because I stayed behind a computer six hours a day. I just loved boots on the ground, talking to, to community people, victims, crime, stopping cars, arresting folks, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and so my heart really, is it, still today, uh, is with that, with that crew going on a call. It was not, you know, just to move up as a chief, but I saw that there would be an area where I could take everything I knew, no matter how small or how big, depending on whom you ask, and those opinions are certainly out there, right, to share with the folks the things I've learned, good and bad, don't do this, don't do that, and help the fire service guys whom I still think to a certain degree kind of flounder a little bit because that lack of connectivity and cohesiveness uh, as that training thing goes. And one of the things that I wanted to try to do before I left the department was to have a more formidable connection between live, real-time training that we got every month at Wake County EMS and give it to these 1,991 first responding firemen in the you know, in the municipalities and let them know what we're doing right now. They shouldn't have had to learn, you know, three or four, five, six months down the road from some Con Ed program that they get, you know, happenstance at, at Wake Tech and some instructor comes out there to spend two hours or three hours a night to make them more of a part of that. But that was my desire was to work with the fire service folks. And as frustrating as it was sometimes playing the politics with all the different fire departments, I really enjoyed that fireman that would call me on the phone at the office and say, hey, Gene, this is my problem. What do I do about it? I said, well, first of all, you shouldn't call me when it was too late. But now that you were here, let's see how we can fix that. And I like to think that I was a responsive person to people that I didn't really care how they got to where they were. I just wanted to help you fix where you were so we can learn from it and move forward. Uh, no matter what the particular situation was. And, uh, and, and fortunately, I heard a lot more quiet thank yous behind the scenes from their fire chiefs and other people that you know maybe kept some folks out of hot water, kept them from losing their jobs because their um, con ed was behind and things along those lines. Um, I really enjoyed probably that uh, also that last six months that I was in-house because we were pushing out a whole lot of new training but I finally just went to Dr. Myers and said, you know what? There's no reason why these guys aren't using Narcan. It ain't going to hurt nobody. So I put together a little training program that ended up taking between four to six hours, depending on the size of the department. And I literally pushed that out to every fire department and touched every fire department and every shift in that last several months that I worked at the county uh, in doing that. And it was practical things, you know, showing them the new electric stretchers that we were using, things along those lines that they would just show up on the call and say, oh, well, when did y'all get these electric stretches? Oh, we've had them for three or four months. And they had no idea how to operate these things. They didn't know what the stair chairs were. They didn't know the philosophy behind why we were doing it and all those things. So it really, um, I think, bridged a big gap 
that was there. You know, and being a, a division chief uh, with the uh, EMS, it certainly you know, opened up a lot of doors. You know, working as a district fill-in uh, nights and weekends with the crews and getting back out there again, boots on the ground. Chief Olson uh, was you know nice enough to uh, get me to work through Walnut Creek, you know, uh, the District 10 situation out there. And, and I certainly enjoyed that, going out there nice after I leave the office and, and, and mingling again with the folks because in the training division, you just didn't get to do that much of it unless you work uh, overtime. Probably one of the other scarier calls that I had ever uh, been on at the time, uh, of course, I was not actually on the call. I was uh, the District 10 that night at the fair when that ride collapsed. And I'll never forget that moment that we first heard about that was was over a staticky two-way radio conversation, and I'm pretty sure it was between the Labor Department personnel were screaming on the radio. Uh, and then, of course, you know, all hell broke loose, as we say, and you know, my page is going off and deputies are on the radio screaming. One of the best incident command things I've ever been involved with was that night in the command trailer at the fairgrounds, there was a fellow deputy of mine that uh, used to work with some for many years, Chip Hall. We sat right there across from the table, no bigger than your desk, and we managed that whole scene without ever being on the scene, so to speak. And uh, he did and gave me everything that we needed at the time, paths of ingress, egress, and so forth, and it couldn't have worked any better. Uh, and then I guess, you know, another one would have been that uh, morning that I had just checked on as the old Medic 94 car, and Jeff Hammerstein called and says, hey, you're getting ready to get banged out to a call at the Sheraton for a bunch of sick people. And as I hit the in-service button, Rescom toned me out, and I got over there to the Sheraton. And I remember walking up to um, as an escort uh, person with, with this group of school kids there, and I said, you know, what do we got? I said, well, we've got a bunch of kids with diarrhea and vomiting and so forth and so on. And I said, well, how many are we talking about? He says, uh, well over 100. I said, no, how many sick ones? He said, well over 100. I immediately picked up the microphone on my radio and said, you know, Rescom, I need, you know, I think it was a, a box three alarm at the time, which was at the time was the biggest thing that we had, and it sounded like tones went off for about 10 minutes. But I thought, you know, my God, I've got a teacher here, an adult standing here saying, we have well over 100 people with nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. And while that's not your typical thing that you think of as an emergency, I knew that we had to deploy all the resources we had, number one, to get on top of what the situation was because we didn't know how many were sick in their rooms that hadn't called for aid. And so the whole hotel had to be scoured and heads accounted for. So uh, that was, that was you know, probably another incident that as an APP that I responded to that I was uh, professionally in my career, I was fortunate to have that experience. Um, Another one that, that marks up there was one night I was an APP that responded to a football player uh, up in um, Wake Forest. wasn't at the Wake Forest High School. It's the one on the other side of uh, the highway up Wakefield. there. Wakefield High School. I went into cardiac arrest. I believe um, Mike Dean and Robert Powers were the paramedics that had responded, and I responded in conjunction with them. And fortunately, we were able to resuscitate that kid and get him back. So um, while I have had a storied career with both department, so to speak, I, I certainly can truly say that even still today that I love both of, of those job roles. And so as I knew that I was getting into the twilight of my career, my mother died in 2006 uh, after being chronically ill for some period of time. And while I was at the funeral home, which was literally across the street from where I lived in Garner at the time, I just thought, well, you know, golly, by the time I retire, you know, I don't want to really tote a gun again actively, and I, I don't want to be, you know, 
55 or 60 years old falling out of the back of an ambulance because this is all I knew. And unfortunately, I had seen that on a lot of paramedics that I knew never went to school to either learn another skill or to get a college degree that would make them a little bit more marketable. And Wake Tech was fortunate enough to start an alternating program back in 99-2000 that we could go to class one day, work the next day, and work towards our degrees. Anyway, I finally finished mine up in 2006, no, 2007. So I'm looking at this pipeline of what do I want to be next when I grow up, and I still don't know, and I'm not in any hurry to find out because I'm having fun doing whatever it is that I'm doing now. But that being neither here nor there, I thought, well, you know, Fayetteville Tech has an online uh, funeral service program. So I enrolled in that, and at the same time, I thought, you know, let me just get my bachelor's degree in EMS because I had just got my associates at Wake Tech. So I concurrently <laughs> started in August of 2007 taking associates in funeral and a bachelor's um, in EMS. And they were trugging along, you know, concurrently on, on simultaneous tracks. And um, Steve's job came open. I knew it would be probably important you know, to finish that up, finish that up and was able to Fortunately, uh, had a successful interview process, moved, moved into that position, worked under Joseph Zalkin at the time, and then um, Don Garner, whom I go back to his first field delivery with, and his first day on an ambulance asking me uh, with a cardiac patient we're carrying in, he says, hey, what does EMD stand for? Because we picked up this gentleman with crushing chest pain and we were headed to the hospital 1039, as we, we said at the time. I said, Don, that will be what we call electromechanical dissociation or third-degree heart block. He said, oh, hell, drive faster. <laughs> and this was, you know, way back then when we weren't you know, doing that much. I think it was like 98 or 99. So anyway, as I see the twilight of my career ending you know, here with the county in 30, 31 years, I knew that I was going to go into the funeral service. That was going to be kind of my retirement career because you know, I just you know, I didn't want to be a cop falling out of a car again. Didn't want to be an old you know EMS person falling out of the back of an ambulance. So I did that for about eighteen months. Um, and while it was an interesting uh, and sometimes fulfilling career, uh, it just lacked some things um, that I wasn't able to find. And here again, I had already worked. By that time, well over 30 years of working nights, weekends, holidays, and I found myself right back in that very same thing. So while I loved being a funeral director and the art of embalming and working with families, all of that, but the, but the schedule was just not conducive, unfortunately, to my selfish retirement career. I had served with a uh, professional scout friend of mine whom I also went to high school with named David Weeby to help start an EMT program at Athens Drive High School a couple of years before I retired. Actually, he had tried to get me to come to work and pick up that slot, but I just had my funeral service thing on mind. I was on track, didn't want anybody to bother it and disturb it. So the spring or, or late winter uh probably 2015 got a phone call david said hey look kicking off an emt program and actually a public safety academy at garner high school what do you think about it i said sign me up i didn't ask didn't even think about it because at the time um i was just tired of you know getting up at night responding to death calls working weekends and just all the things that we were so used to in, in public safety work uh I said sign me up uh, so after some period of time, I got hired on uh, with Wake County Public Schools to um, be uh, department head of the EMT EMS portion of a public safety academy and walked in the classroom just thinking that I was going to have, you know, 30 students every day sitting there 
as I had been accustomed to in my professional life, burning with desire, waiting to learn. And it was professionally the biggest shock and letdown of my career academically in that setting. And so I stayed for, as I say, 92 days. There were several instances of things that happened in the classroom, out of the classroom, in that whole high school environment that was simply not fitting for me. And I said to uh, the principal, I said, while I appreciate this opportunity, this is not for me. And as much as I love teaching, teaching high school kids that don't want to be there and have no interest uh, is entirely a, a different ball of wax. Uh, and so for the time being, I'm, as we say, gainfully retired, and I'm exploring other avenues of interest. This has been great, Gene, but I can't leave this podcast without talking about condoms, because... <laughs> <laughs> Counter-narcotics, tactical operation, medical specialist, yes. I remember that summer. Yeah, I remember that summer, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's really unusual to have a chief of an organization... One, being a tactical medic, and mm-hmm. two, I did it for a couple reasons. One is because it was something different, mm-hmm. and I was very interested in it, but I had no clue. And I think it was you and Jason Wells that got me through that mm-hmm. program. I learned mm-hmm. so much. So I probably never properly thank you for helping me get through that program. I remember being gassed for the first time and, <laughs> and coming out, and you guys were just right next to me making sure I was okay. And yeah. I knew but we were enjoying it, too, see, on a, on a sadistic kind of level. Yeah, I'm sure you were. <laughs> I'm sure you were. So I do appreciate uh, spending that week with you. It was a great experience. So thank you for joining me on Medic to Medic Podcast. Again, you can reach uh, the podcast at medictomedicpodcast.com. You can do it on iTunes. You can also email me at medictomedicpodcast at gmail.com. Gene, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Steve.